Take your Bible, please, and turn to Acts chapter 9. That's our passage today. We are continuing in our series, Turning Points, looking at some of the pivotal moments in the book of Acts. And today in Acts chapter 9, we come to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Here's the key concept this morning. History's greatest missionary comes to faith. I don't think there'd be any argument with that title of Saul of Tarsus, soon to be called the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary in all of history. And his conversion story on the road to Damascus is probably the most, con- most famous conversion story of all. Luke is so impressed with the conversion of Saul that he includes the telling of this story three times in the book of Acts. It's told here in the historical uh, narrative. It's also recounted twice from later the Apostle Paul's own lips as he talked about how Jesus brought him to himself in a miracle on the Damascus Road. But in fact, every conversion story is a miracle. Every conversion is an encounter with Jesus Christ. No one is born a follower of Jesus Christ. If we are a person in the family of God, we have encountered him somewhere along the way and said yes to faith. Jesus himself said, you must be born again. And that's the message of the gospel. This Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the faith, will turn into a great missionary for the faith. And it reminds me of another missionary little closer to our time, but some time ago, Adoniram Judson was the pioneer missionary to Burma, brought the gospel message to Burma, now Myanmar, uh, for the first time. He was a brilliant man, an excellent student. He actually translated the entire Bible into Burmese by himself, and to enable those people to read the Bible, he wrote the official Burmese dictionary that is still being used today, Adniram Judson. He was a brilliant individual on fire for the Lord, but it wasn't always that way. When he went to college, he left behind what he considered the simple faith of his family. And there he met a man named Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames was a cynic, a sharp critic of the Christian faith. Adoniram Judson hadn't really committed himself to Jesus, was just kind of floating along the faith of his his family, and so it was easy for him to discard that along with a bunch of other stuff, just like an old suitcase when he went to college. And all of that was fine with Adoniram Judson. He listened to Ames. He was influenced by Ames. But by the time graduation came, even though Adoniram Judson graduated top of his class, Uh, He and um, Jacob Ames kind of went their separate ways. They went to follow the direction of their lives, and they hadn't heard about each other for quite some time when one day Adoniram Judson was on his way to Plymouth, Massachusetts, which was his home. And on the way, he stopped in an inn overnight. And while he was in the inn overnight, it became clear to him he wasn't going to get much sleep because in the room next to him, a man was dying. And he wasn't just dying quietly. He was groaning with the pain of his illness and sickness. But it wasn't just the pain of his illness. There was terror in his voice. He was pleading not to die, calling out, uh, facing down the, the idea of death. And it was disconcerting and it was scary to hear the agony and the terror in this man's voice all night. 
Well, finally, he dozed off in the wee hours of the morning. The next day, he got up and he went to the clerk and he talked about the man in the next room. He goes, what, what was happening? And the clerk said, he died in, in the early morning. But he was not an old man. He's a man about your age. And for some reason, Adoniram Judson asked the name of the man. His name was Jacob Ames. He was Adoniram Judson's college buddy. And now he listened to him in the throes of death. And he didn't hear confidence. And he didn't hear pride. What he heard was a terrified man, sick unto death, with no hope, pleading for his life. And the shock of the death of Jacob Ames shook Adoniram Judson. He turned his heart towards Christ. Not right away. It took him three months or so of just struggling and wrestling with this, what he thought he had left behind. But he turned to Jesus and was converted and never looked back. And the same can be said of Saul of Tarsus. We read his conversion story here in Acts chapter 9. Read with me. In verse 1, this is what it says. You follow along. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and, and, and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul encountered Jesus on the Damascus road. We all must encounter Jesus if we would come to Him. And one of the things that happens when we come to Him through an encounter with Jesus is He breaks through and gives us a new awareness of ourselves, a new reality of who we really are and who we're really not. I once heard a story about the movie star Robert Redford. He was on the city street, and a woman identified him. And, but the way she did it was kind of strange. She said, are you the real Robert Redford? And his answer was, only when I'm alone. It's a good answer. Now, who was Saul of Tarsus when he was alone? Who was Saul of Tarsus? Who was the real Saul of Tarsus? This was a man who was driven to stamp out the church. This time, at this point, it was called the way. The word Christian had not been coined yet. Later on in his life, he describes himself. In Acts chapter 22, he says this, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, he's in Jerusalem. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. I want you to note verse 4. He stresses the fact that I arrested both men and women. Luke brings that out too in his telling of the story. He arrested both men and women. And that is a statement that is meant to bring emphasis to his story. Because this is a totally male-dominated society. If he was going to change the course of, of the direction of a culture or, or a city, he would go after the men. But he went further than that. 
He arrested both men and women, causing the children of those families to be orphans. It was a heartless, pitiless, cruel way to do it, and he knew it was cruel. No wonder later in his life he writes to Timothy in, in chapter 1, Here is a trustworthy saying that de deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He looks back on these days, and he sees sin, but he didn't see it at the time. At the time, he saw himself protecting his faith. He thought he was honoring the true God being patriotic towards his nation. There's no hint of a man who's doubting himself. He vehemently hates these Christ followers. He hates what they believe, and he hates them for believing it. He sees the Christian faith as a threat. He is anti-Christian. And we live in a time, too, where there's a bias of anti-Christian. It's all around us, and it's worldwide. It seems you can talk about anything to your friends, even politics, even religion. But when you bring up Jesus, there's a reaction. We talk about your experience with Jesus. Don't push that religion down my throat. There's a pushback. Have you ever stopped to think why? Why is it that it is Jesus who is so volatile in these conversations? It's almost as if the forces of evil understand that this Faith is a threat. If this faith gets a foothold, it's going to spread. If it spreads, it's going to change lives. If it changes lives, it's going to change the world. And that's exactly what happens here. This faith following Jesus demands real belief. You can't play it halfway. There's no games to be played with Jesus Christ. When He comes into your life, He will change everything. And the fear of that is the pushback. It's the reaction. So Paul sees these people who have been changed, these Christ followers who are different than anything that he's seen. They deserve to be persecuted. Deep down in his heart, I wonder, however, as he hauls these men and women off to prison, leaves their children crying at the side of the road, I wonder if he's starting to doubt his position. I wonder if he's starting to feel a tug in his own heart. It's possible that when his head hit the pillow at night, there was a question because he replays the events of the day. And what he sees is the memory of humble, tenacious, faithful people, unwilling to reject Jesus. There's actually a verse in the Bible that indicates to us that there might have been an internal struggle. I think there was going on in Paul's life. It's in Acts 26, verse 14. He's then the Apostle Paul, but he adds this detail to Luke's telling of his conversion. Uh, Lu uh, 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 Paul remembers when he was Saul that Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Luke doesn't report that part, but Paul remembers it years, years later. And what it is, is Jesus using an obscure saying. It's actually a Greek proverb, born in the cu a culture where ox-drawn carts and carriages were the norm. Goads were sharp sticks that they would put out to hurry the oxen along. 
And they would poke the oxen with those goads. And every once in a while, the oxen would get sick and tired of that and kick it. But that didn't help. In fact, all it did was hurt more. And so that saying became a little bit of a proverb for the uselessness of resisting something. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I think that what Jesus is letting us know by saying that to Saul is he's already in torment a little bit. He's already struggling on the inside. There is a prodding from the Holy Spirit that's happening, and he's feeling it. You see, in every situation, there is a dark night of the soul that happens before you come to a peaceful relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that time when you're walking spiritually on the edge between light and darkness. And in that position, we always cling to the dark. Why? Because that's what we know. That's what we're used to. That's what we're familiar with. We often fight to stay in the dark, fighting off that call to leap into the light, that leap of faith. But when Jesus calls us, when we say yes to that call, that's exactly what happens, out of the darkness and into the light. And Saul is the kind of person who was resisting that prodding of the Holy Spirit. And he's exactly the kind of person that no one expects to be converted. Maybe you know people like that. Somebody that you don't expect ever to come to faith. So hardened, so callous, so mean against the things of God. Or maybe you are that person. Maybe you have all kinds of convincing arguments as to why you shouldn't come to Christ. All kinds of, you know, in information as to why it's not real and it's not true and it's not for you and so forth. Saul was that person. He had all the studies. He had all the degrees. He had all the reasons. And he had gone public with his resistance. It was his career to resist Christianity. In other words, when he would eventually say yes to Christ, Saul of Tarsus had to turn his life around. And he didn't do it quietly. He couldn't do it secretly. He was a public figure. He had to swallow his pride and swallow his arguments and recognize that Jesus was sending him into a new story. This is a conversion story. This is why this story is told three times in the book of Acts. Because God is making the point, nobody is too far gone. Nobody you know, and not you. You're not too far gone. Christ breaks through to Saul of Tarsus. And the way that Saul saw his job prior to conversion was he was defending the faith. He was defending the truth. He was defending the, the, the Jewish tradition that he read about, the stories that he memorized, the history that he knew, all of that. He was defending all of that because he saw all of that threatened by these people who said that Jesus was the Messiah. But in a burst of light on the road to Damascus, all of those researched cross-reference theories went right out the window because he understood that God was telling him all of those pointed to Jesus. It was all about Jesus. And Jesus is the one true Messiah. To say yes to that would change everything. Read with me the end of verse 5. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Paul had to change everything. He had to change it all. And change is painful. 
and we all avoid pain, don't we? We all try to run around the pain, avoid the pain. If there's a way for me to change but not have the pain of it, that'd be fine, but no, no pain, please. But sometimes pain is just what we need. Sometimes pain is good. I talked once to a man who was a visitation, uh, on visitation team. He visited in, in hospitals, and he had visited a man who had, just the night before, had his toes amputated off one of his feet. And the reason he had his toes amputated off his feet was because this gentleman had a problem with circulation. He had fallen asleep the night before, and his foot kind of tilted and was leaning against an electric radiator all night. It was the smell of burning flesh that woke him up, not the pain, because he didn't feel pain. See, pain is a gift. Pain tells us something's wrong. Pain tells us head in a new direction. Pain tells us that something needs to be altered. And this is what happens because spiritually very often the first thing that God does in our life is He gives us some pain so that we can recognize that we're not right just the way we are. It was painful for Saul to realize that the Jesus he hated so much loved him through and through. Saul doesn't care about him. He doesn't want him. He doesn't want an encounter with Jesus. And it was painful to hear he's on the wrong track. But the solution was to get on the right track. Pain is often the way that Jesus touches us first because it's when we realize this is not how life's supposed to be. It's when we realize I, I have things broken in me that I can't fix by myself, and I'm done trying because it doesn't work. And when you feel that pain and you turn to Jesus, that's when the new life begins. Amen. It was painful for Saul to realize that the God he was really revering was not the true God. It was just his own idea about God. It was painful for him to understand that his sincerity had led him in a completely opposite direction of what God wanted him to do. That's the point, really, of this story. You can be sincerely wrong. It's not all about just, I am sincere. Your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. Paul, Saul, at this point, was sincerely wrong. It was painful for him to realize that. And when he surrendered to this moment, it was painful for him to be powerless. But he had to become powerless in order to be lifted up. Look at verse 9. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. You see, eventually the guys brought him to D Damascus. Eventually they deposited him in a room, and then there were three days of quiet, three days of blindness, three days of being all by himself. And I imagine that he actually ended up in the house he was going to go to all along. The owner of that house expected a powerful Pharisee. He expected this guy who was on a crusade, you know. He expected to be part of this exciting moment. And what he got was a blind man who wanted to be left alone, who was mumbling something about Jesus. And all throughout this, there's the point that God does not want us to miss, and that is this. This is a sudden and unexpected conversion because of the encounter with Jesus Christ. And God still works sudden, unexpected conversions because of an encounter with Jesus Christ in His miraculous touch. So I want to encourage you, those of you who have loved ones and friends who don't know Christ as Savior, do not give up on them in prayer. 
Do not despair for them or put them aside from your thinking or your prayer concentration because your prayers are working. God still can do sudden, unexpected conversions. And maybe you're the one who I'm talking to. Don't give up on yourself. It can happen to you if you don't know Christ as Savior. Don't say, this is the way I am. I will always be this way. It's not for me. It won't work for me. Don't say that. Say, I will take what you have for me, Jesus, and I will say yes. And what Jesus had for Saul of Tarsus was a new direction in life, eventually a new name, but he also had a new family. And he started building that family right in the midst of this story. Go with me to verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, said Ananias, answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. In other words, Ananias is saying, that doesn't sound like a good idea. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus has a job for Saul of Tarsus. It's going to include suffering but it also is going to include a family. It's going to include people who are around him, who love him and know him. Ananias was the very first family member that Saul of Tarsus met. We don't know anything more about Ananias than what we see right here, but we know him from this to be a man who's willing to take a risk, a man who's understood, he understood who Saul of Tarsus was, but he obeyed anyway. He went to him anyway. And in verse 17, Ananias is the very first Christian to call Saul of Tarsus brother. Saul has never heard that word from a Christian before that moment. He never expected to hear that word from a Christian. He never, Christians never expected to say that of Saul of Tarsus brother. But here's the point. If Jesus has saved you, that's all it takes. We're family. You do not have to look like me. You do not have to talk like me. You don't have to have my level of education or lack of education. Your past is erased. Your future is sure. And our relationship is certain if Jesus has saved you. So we're in the family. A transformed mind believes God and acts on that belief. That's what we see in Ananias. A transformed mind believed God and said, okay, I will go. Doesn't sound like a great idea, but I'm going to go. And he saw Saul of Tarsus. And he reached across to him. Christ in you can reach out in mercy. Christ in you can cancel grudges. Christ in you can erase prejudice. Christ in you can overcome bigotry. Christ in you can build a bridge over the gap, but it demands obedience to Christ in you if it's going to happen. And so Ananias submits. And Saul of Tarsus, the big Pharisee, submits to Ananias, and he's helped, and he's baptized in verse 18 baptized now get this 
This is significant because I want you to remember that the Jews baptized pagans who were coming out of paganism into Judaism. They were rejoicing that this person is having a, a new direction in life, leaving the false behind and now taking up the true. Baptism. Saul had no doubt rejoiced in many of such, these such baptisms in the past. Now he is being baptized as a symbol that he's leaving Judaism into this faith that does not yet even have a name. That's called the way. But all he knows is he's met Jesus. It's a humble step of obedience. And don't get me wrong, it, was, it looked silly. This Pharisee of the Pharisees, this man who was trained under the head teacher of Israel, here he is being dunked under water. But the point is this, don't ever be ashamed of what, God, what honors God in your life, even if it makes you look silly. Don't be ashamed of that. And maybe it's baptism for you. Some of us haven't been baptized yet, and maybe we're putting it off. You know, it's kind of undignified, getting all wet and whatnot. But don't ever be ashamed of what honors God in your life. And maybe what it is for you, what's next, is to say yes to forgiveness and repentance and to start with Jesus as your Savior. Do you need to let Jesus break through? It happens as you are willing to receive His forgiving touch. It's not automatic. It's not inherited. You don't catch it just from going in and out of church. It's something that you need to choose to do. Years later, this same guy Saul, then the Apostle Paul, writes these words in Ephesians, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, when you turn in faith, simple faith to Jesus, He does the saving. You don't do the saving. What your faith, picture it as like a conduit through which His grace travels into your heart. And as His grace travels into your heart, as you're saying yes to Him, He begins to transform you from the inside out. And Jesus called that being born again. It simply means you're starting over again. But now you have hope and you're washed clean of your sin. And you have a purpose in this life. And you have a place in glory. Have you done that? Because maybe some of us haven't. And that's what this story is all about. It's saying that can happen to you. And maybe it needs to. And if it needs to, you know that it needs to. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who's telling you, prodding you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Because there may be a couple, either here on our campus or watching on the Internet, who know that that's what they need. And if I'm talking to you, I want you to turn to Jesus in faith and express it in a prayer, quietly in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. But you pray something like this. Let me help you. You say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe you died on the cross and you paid the price of my sin. I believe you rose again and you can forgive me today. So forgive me. Make me new. I want to live for you. Lord, I don't know who prayed that prayer. But I pray that there are those who did because I know that's what you want. And I pray that as 
We turn to you and take the leap out of darkness into the light. I pray that they are changed. I pray for transformation. I, ch- I pray for a new family of faith. I pray for a new direction in life. And for all of us already who've, who walk with you, Lord, we recognize that we constantly need to check ourselves. Am I where I need to be? Am I sensitive to the Spirit? Am I saying yes to the prodding of my Savior? And am I more and more like Jesus? Lord, help us be more and more like Jesus. We love you and we worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Maybe you prayed that prayer today, uh, whether here or uh, at home on the Internet. And uh, the way we're responding to that these days is by asking you to text the word FAITH to 209-257-8768. When you text the word FAITH to 209-257-8768, you're going to get a form that asks you to write down your contact information, send it back in so that I can mail you this booklet. It's called Now What? Living Out Your Christian Faith. And it's just a good guide for the beginning stages of a commitment or a recommitment to Jesus as Savior. And it's a great place to begin. I'd love to be in touch with you and send you that. So go ahead and send that text. Uh, But now we're going to hear once again and rejoice in worship and song.
Amen. Let's, let's pray the benediction. Heavenly Father, thank you that when we're with you, it seems like that's all that matters. But you are always with us. There's no place we can go to escape your presence. And Lord, we thank you for that because we don't want to live this life on our own. So we pray as we go our separate ways today that you would enable us to be the agents of the telling of the story of hope. Help us in the words we say, in the deeds that we do, in the lives that we lead to be a picture of what Jesus looks like. Help us towards that end. Enable us to represent you well, we pray. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.